Hi, I just finished listening to the episode on apologies, and I did not like it. And I apologize for not liking it, but during the year you ask for callers and listeners to call in with their apologies. And granted, you don't want to give people's names out, but I think that your listeners would like to hear what other listeners are apologizing for. I felt that the story from Mr. Davenport was unnecessary on this particular occasion. So I just wanted you to know how I felt. Shana Tova, and uh, I'll keep listening, but I did not enjoy today's episode. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Happy Sukkot. Happy Sukkot. And editor-at-large and host of Take One, our baby podcast brother, Liel Leibowitz. I'm still so sorry for everything. I just want to apologize again and again and again. The teshuva keeps on teshuving. Today on the show, we're bringing you an interview with Warren Klein and Jenna weissman Jocelyn, the editor of and a contributor to a new collection of essays about the etrog, that citrusy thing that we need for Sukkot, a holiday we're about to step into. The collection of essays has the wonderful title, Be Fruitful, the Etrog in Jewish Art, Culture, and History. Also, I want mail from all the Yiddishists out there calling it an estrog. I've been waiting for an estrog book. An estrog movie with, with Timothy Chalamet as the estrog would, would have been better, <laughs> but okay. A book is fine. I assume it's an animated movie, or is he actually just putting on an, an estrog costume? No, by the way, if we needed four actors to play the four species that are about the meaning of Sukkot, I nominate Timothy Chalamet as the estrog. Who, who do you feel as a lulav? First, I think you need to say what the four species are for our <laughs> casting director, for our casting call. <laughs> The four species are the Esrog, Zalulav, the Arava, and the Hadassim. The Etrog, which has a smell and a flavor. The Hadas, which has a smell but no flavor. The Lulav, which has flavor but no smell. And poor Arava, if I may be getting this wrong, that, that has neither of those things. This is all more charged since COVID when a lot of people no longer have taste or smell. So this could be Correct. triggering for people. The Lulav is definitely Adam Driver. It's a tall, oh, lanky, brilliant. Like, waves in the breeze, like, right? Like a super tall, <laughs> lanky, like Adam Driver's the only person who could play the S-Rock, or the Lulav, rather. Aubrey Plaza as the Arava, <laughs> just because I don't like Aubrey Plaza. And Hadassim, I feel, have, has to be someone very special. Who's who's playing Hadass? Natalie Portman. Because <laughs> why not? Too soon. No, sorry. It's going to be a non-Jewish actor playing a Jewish role for this, right? Right. It's Rachel Brosnahan. <laughs> It's definitely Rachel Rachel, give Rachel Brosnan a role. As, as <laughs> We're also bringing you today an interview with Roger Studley, the founder of the Berkeley Moshav, a Jewish co-housing community in California. And finally, we're running a piece that we aired for Sukkot a few years ago. We seldom do this. We are not all about the recycling. But former editor Sophia Steinert Evoy went to Lind Cove Ranch in Exeter, California to visit the country's only commercial etrog farm. And it's, you know what? For those of you who've heard it before, you're psyched to hear it again. And for the rest of you, it's new to you. So welcome. Luckily, it is still the only commercial etrog farm. There haven't been like new ones that have cropped up in the past few years. So we're, we're good on that, on that claim. Most definitely. Um, 
So today on Unorthodox, in addition to all of those guests, we are going to do a clearing out of the mailbox. We're going to declutter the mailbox. So much good mail has come in. But before we do, Stephanie, I understand that your husband had an interesting episode this week that we're going to talk about. Do you want to catch us up on Ben Cohen? Yes. Well, it depends on which Ben Cohen you're referring to. So the Ben in Ben and Jerry's is also named Ben Cohen. That's arguably, that's one of the most famous Ben Cohens. One is like a rugby player. One is someone else. I don't know. One is the one I'm married to. The third most famous Ben Cohen. The third most famous Ben Cohen. So Ben works at the Wall Street Journal and the other Ben Cohen of Ben and Jerry's wrote an op-ed. So Ben and Jerry wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. But when it went in the system, he got tagged with this Ben Cohen's byline. So if you clicked on it, you'd see like Ben and Jerry's op-ed and then like a bunch of articles about sports. And at the bottom, it's like email Ben Cohen if you're mad about this article. And it gave like <laughs> this poor Ben Cohen's email. But so anyway, so he saw that this had happened and this happens at tab, you know, like this is the kind of thing internally. It's like a few clicks of the button. And so he reached out to someone, but apparently it had already been flagged by other people. And there was a department sort of like working on sorting it out. And the person who replied to him said, we're getting this fixed. It sounds like great fodder for unorthodox. (laughs) (laughs) So someone there saw what was happening and realized that this would be something funny for us to discuss at unorthodox. Um, And Ben, I don't think knew the person or knew that this person listened to the show. I came for the frozen pints and I stayed for the hot hand. It's amazing. I will also say that Ben Cohen wrote an article for Tablet. That's how we met. He was writing for Tablet when I was helping edit a million years ago. And we put him in as Ben Z. Cohen, which is not his byline, but we had a bunch of other Ben Cohens. We had Benjamin Cohen. We had Ben Zion Cohen. We had all of these things. (laughs) And he wrote me back. This is before we were dating or anything. He's like, Hi there. Like, this is not my byline. And I was like, respectfully, like, like we had this like very like collegial. <laughs> it is now. Best. Respectfully, fuck off. <laughs> what do you think? You're, you're the first Ben Cohen? He was like, why is there a Z? And I was like, hi, Mr. Cohen. There are a lot of other Ben Cohens who write for this publication. <laughs> Did it then get super flirtatious? Like, is the end of this email thread like, so when are we going out? <laughs> No, it took, is that it how it took happened? a little longer. No, he's like, who's this bitch who, who gave me a Z and I don't want a Z. <laughs> By the I way. I love the Z. Respectfully, Stephanie T. Butnick. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, if I may, if I may digress, the end of the middle initial as something that people use saddens me. Now, I was never going to use E because my middle name, Edward, is controversial within my own family for reasons I can get into. My parents actually lied to me about whether I had a middle name for many years. Um, but unlike Liel's who are still lying to him that he does not have a middle right. name. Correct. But you know, my brother who writes as Daniel Oppenheimer and as, you know, has a couple books out and many, many, many bylines, he has a strong middle initial. He's, he's J Daniel J Oppenheimer would be an awesome, a killer baller byline. And nobody uses middle initials anymore. And Z is of course the greatest of all middle initials. Like that he's not Benjamin Z Cohen in his byline <laughs> is a missed opportunity. I like Ben. He makes many smart choices. He marriage wise, <laughs> career wise, but missing out on the opportunity to go Benjamin Z Cohen, that was a fail. Before we get to the mailbox, just want to give a shout out to our big podcast family. I'm super excited that we're in week five of Gate Crashers. The episode on the history of Jews at Brown University has dropped this week. It's a, a look at the woman in the late 1950s, whose dining room basically became the kosher dining center for the very, very few Brown students who kept kosher. Her name was Miriam Smith. We found her kids. We found people ate at her table. It's such a beautiful, wonderful episode. And I'm so excited. Please subscribe to Gatecrashers. Yes, everyone should go listen to Gatecrashers and the rest of this episode. Next up in the fall holiday extravaganza is Sukkot. 
it's a harvest holiday, and to celebrate, we build sukkahs, these very cool hut-like structures, and we hang out in them. The other big Sukkot tradition is to shake the lulav and etrog. The lulav is a special frond combination, and the etrog is a yellow citron that looks a lot like a lemon. It's a super important part of Sukkot. There's a beautiful new book out all about the etrog. It's called Be Fruitful, the Etrog in Jewish Art, Culture, and History. The collection is edited by Warren Klein, Sharon Lieberman-Mintz, and Joshua Toplitsky. I talked to Klein and Jenna Weissman-Josselet, one of the book's contributors and one of our favorite returning guests. Here's our conversation. Warren Klein, Jenna Weissman-Josselet, welcome to Unorthodox. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So let's start this celebration of the Etrog. Warren, you know, for someone who has never heard of the Etrog, will you tell us what it is, how it's used, when it's used, where it's used? Sure. Okay, so this this is, I'm not a rabbi, but I will do my best. Um, So in Leviticus, in the Torah, it talks about, it actually doesn't even use the word Etrog. It says pre-etz hadar, you know, a beautiful fruit from the tree. Um, it does mention the lulav and and the myrtle and all of those others by name. So, you know, the use of the etrog itself really comes from rabbinic Judaism. Um, and, you know, the fact that it was available to our ancestors in the Mediterranean world and the Middle East. And so it is used uh, in conjunction with the other uh, three species on Sukkot. And you're shaking it, you're smelling it, you're using it in the synagogue and at home um, for part of the ritual use on the holiday. What made you start thinking about this? What led to, you know, ultimately the creation of Be Fruitful, the (laughs) etrog in Jewish art, culture, and history? It actually takes us back about five years, the genesis of this project. Uh, My co-editors, Professor Joshua Teplitsky and Sharon Lieberman-Mintz, approached me about doing an exhibition at uh, the museum that I run at Temple Emanuel. And uh, with that would be this beautiful catalog that has come before the exhibition, which happens sometimes. And, you know, sometimes these projects takes years. But I was approached um, mainly because we needed a venue for this exhibition, which hopefully will come next year. But also, I think I come to it from the interest uh, with all of the artwork. You'll see many pages of beautiful etro boxes, some of them dating back to the 17th century. So that's kind of my area of expertise and interests and those objects that we could and eventually will use in an exhibition. So we have essays that deal with how the etrog was represented in biblical times and post-biblical times in the temple on coins, really kind of going chronologically, uh, you know, during medieval times, we have an essay by Evelyn M. Cohen that's looking at the etrog represented in medieval manuscripts and, and manuscripts from the Renaissance and essays like Jenna dealing with American Jewish history, all the way up to um, essays about the, the art of the containers and the boxes and the origins of those um, that we use today and we, we all see in museums and have at home. And also the etrog in literature as well. There's also an essay about that and, and Agnon's um, essay too. This is amazing. So, so Jenna, tell us a little bit about your interest in the etrog. You know, we'll get to what you contributed to this volume, but give us sort of the Jenna Weissman Jocelyn spin on like why the etrog <laughs> is this like tiny overlooked fruit that we should actually embrace and like why this is the perfect time to do it. Uh, where to start? Um, I guess I never really thought about the etrog uh, as a cultural historical phenomenon. I, I have one. I have a beautiful etrog box. Uh, I, I My husband delights in picking out a very beautiful etrog. It's part of the holiday process, but I never thought of it uh, as a, a topic of uh, 
historical considerations so that when Sharon and Josh approached me, I just thought it was such a hoot, ha! <laughs> you know, the, the etrog is something that transcends time and ritual and that has a history. And so I agreed without ever doing any research about the etrog. And the more I researched my own tiny little piece, which is American Jewish history, I realized it has quite a storied history and a very sweet history as well. Uh, and then I plunged deeply into it and discovered all sorts of things about what I would call in a fancy way, the ritual economy of Jewish life and how the etrog uh, was part of it and then it wasn't part of it and then it was reclaimed and it became something else. And so it so intrigued me uh, as a way of looking at, at American Jewish life over time. I want to say that this book is beautiful. Like I'm holding it right Thank now. You. Our Thank listeners you. can't see it, but it's it seems like it was important showing us this sort of everyday. I mean, it's not everyday, right? We only use it really once a year, but this, this very basic object as, as almost a, a work of art. Absolutely. And I think it was also important to us to trace its history from its biblical or even pre-biblical origins all the way into the 20th century from aspects of how it was celebrated, how it was acquired. A lot of people don't think about, oh, you just go down to you know, a Jewish neighborhood or a Judaica store and buy an etrog today. But that wasn't the case for our ancestors always. So how are they getting things. them? Well, a couple of chapters do deal with that <laughs> and different controversies. But, you know, that was one of the great surprises for me, thinking about my ancestors in Central and Eastern Europe. And, you know, we think today, oh, everyone could own an etrog if you wanted to during the holiday. But oftentimes it was, no, it was a communal etrog. And there was a, a person, probably a man, who was known as the Esroiger, who went down to the Mediterranean who knew how to acquire one for the community at great expense, too. So all these kind of stories um, are in the book, its histories and the documents that they left behind. Jenna, what was something that really surprised you that you found that will just like blow our listeners' minds? I don't know if it'd blow anybody's <laughs> mind, but the idea that that uh, at one moment in time, uh, one could entirely dispense with the holiday of Sukkot because it just didn't fit into the urban lifestyle of, of so many acculturating Jews. And then uh, there was an effort to hold on to it, not just to restore it, but to hold on and to make it into something brand new that would find a place for itself uh, in, in the lives of modern Jews. So I never really gave any thought to the etrog's disappearance. It never occurred to me because um, when I look around, well, pre-COVID, uh, the synagogue is full of people brandishing a lulav and an etrog. So I never thought about issues of scarcity or abundance or erasure. So when I started to dig um, in, in the newspapers of the time and in rabbinical proceedings, the thought that um, a very significant proportion of the population had no truck with Sukkot, uh, let alone the etrog, uh, was kind of um, shocking to me. And then equally shocking and affirming was the attempt of some, not everybody, but of some to uh, to arrest that process and to make into the etrog something entirely different, which was a, a decorative element as opposed to a, a ritual artifact. So that um, history, that tension is so endearing to me. And no, the subtitle of this book is The Etrog in Jewish Art, Culture, and History. The Jewish art part, I have to say, was completely surprising to me. I mean, the, some of the artifacts and some of the art that's reproduced here I just can't believe that there are so many depictions of this. Was mm -hmm. that something that was surprising to you? It wasn't so surprising to me. I mean, part of my background, you know, I did study medieval manuscripts and things like that. So I was familiar with, you know, the illustrations in the liturgy that had to do with Sukkot of usually men, again, holding the four species. But one thing that was surprising me was the depiction of the etrog in 19th and 20th century art, which... I think if we could go back in time, I might have written a little piece on that and that we will be including hopefully in the exhibition is the depiction of artists, of people holding the etrog, of this valuable thing, of this 
you know, if you had to pick one thing that was representative of Sukkot, and, and there, there's more to it as well, but, you know, some big names in Jewish art, like Isidore Kaufman, you know, you know, having these pictures of etrog. So, you know, that part was more surprising to me. What should someone who's never had an etrog, never bought one before, like, what could we do this year? That's well, a- buy one, <laughs> raise it aloft, and, and just marvel at something that's a fruit. It's a fruit, um, but it has a history, a storied history that um, has to do with environmental history, has to do with ritual, I and mean, it just contains the world, really, so that even if you're not uh, religiously inclined and uh, prepared to, to use this in a traditional sense, just buying the fruit, inhaling its fragrances, beholding it and realizing uh, that it contains the story of Jewish history writ large is, is so, um, so positive. And if I could add just two small things to that, too, I, I think... I think, you know, look around you, think about those aspects of your life, whether they are in ritual practice or not, that maybe they have these kind of long histories that you have no idea about. And, you know, that was kind of the great theme and surprise of this project for me. And also think about what's going on in the contemporary world. If you go to Israel or other places, you can buy etrog jam, you can buy etrog liqueur. And thinking about, you know, how contemporary people are, you know, reusing their leftover etrog after the holiday, too. So I think that's kind of a delightful thing as well. I love the idea that maybe years from now, these modern practices will be part of, you know, the next collection (laughs) like this, right? Where it's like, and then people were making cocktails out of. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? They do. Yeah. They do now. Sure. Yeah. No, I remember great. when the project first got started, um, I had mentioned to uh, to Warren that uh, there's this very wonderful perfume maker, a scent maker known as Joe Malone, who has all sorts of citrusy things. And I said, you know, it would really be great to speak to the folks in Joe Malone. It's now a London company about producing a special, they produce all these special holiday scents. So maybe uh, a holiday scent about the Sudan that didn't come to pass. I, I but uh, I just love the idea of this celebrating <laughs> a scent maker from London devoting a special scent of the season uh, to the citron. So it'd be really nice. It's really nice. Absolutely. I also thought something that was interesting in the book was sort of the way in which non-Jews related to Jews over this concept of the etrog, right? Like there was a way in which, you know, we did a story on on this podcast a few years ago for Sukkot about the non-Jewish uh, etrog farmer out in California mm. who mm. has this one big thing every right. year where he's like, yeah, he sells to all the Jews. And to have these interactions by non-Jews with, with our rituals in these fun ways. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the stuff in the book about that? One thing that comes to mind is really you had talked and pointed out the cover of the book, actually. And it uh, comes from a book, this kind of huge, um, gosh, what do you call them? books about kind of gardening and vegetables and fruit. And, you know, they don't refer to it as the etrog. It's Citrus Medica, you know, by its Latin name. And it's showing um, all of these citrus fruits. Literally, this volume is enormous and hundreds of pages and the gardens in which they grew. And so people were kind of studying them from, from a different perspective, but wanted to include every single type of citrus fruit that they can imagine in the world. And this was during the 18th century. I'm also thinking that the folks in in the early modern age, whose task it was to uh, secure a series of etrogum, had to deal with the authorities. So um, those who were in charge of highways and poll taxes and things of that sort. And even today, the idea of shipping and dealing with a whole series of interlocutors along the way in order to get this particular thing 
into the hands of Jews at a particular point in time. And it's wild. It's wild. Right. That reminds me of, an, of another story. I think it was in, in Joshua's article about, you know, how sometimes it was, you know, who was the one who was going to procure the etrog and sometimes the authorities had to intervene or, you know, the, <laughs> right. the ruling duke or prince or something like that to, to write an edict saying, okay, you are the one. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really summarizing here. His article is much more scholarly, but, you know, finding those archival documents and it's just, you know, blowing your mind that... Licenses, licenses permission, exactly. you know, official documentation. So Stamps, this isn't a, seals, a kind yeah. of a stamp, a seal, a part of a sub Rosa economy. It's part of a, of a global traffic that uh, entailed uh, not only Jewish communal involvement, but that of the uh, political forces that be. And then boycotts, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the wake of this horrific uh, blood libel um, in Corfu, uh, Jews decide to boycott Corfu. So, you know, the ramifications of this tiny little yellow fruit uh, really transcend the immediate precincts of Jewish ritual life. It's fascinating because, you know, each year people get their etrogs, right? People who, you know, observe this particular tradition. And it's so fascinating to think about how, yes, of course, their ancestors for years and years held these or didn't. um, But then also sort of the like the almost minutiae of procuring them is such a funny history. And that like that actually is something that we could connect to. We could sort of tap into that each year and having that the 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 richness of that like layered story. Mm-hmm. Right. And and also one thing that another thing comes to mind is, you know, keeping them so precious and safe. Because of course, you know, if if the Pitam is broken, it's not a kosher etrog and can you use it? Can you not use it? And it comes with, you know, that that stuff, whatever, like hags, flax, thank flags. you. How often do Jews come in contact with flax? <laughs> and, and, you know, that kind of brings to mind, you know, thinking about all the variety of etrog boxes and containers. And, um, you know, we have one in our collection that comes with a story where a family, you know, they couldn't afford it. So they they just had this kind of sugar bowl that they inherited. And that was used for generations to keep the etrog safe and secure during the holidays. So... You know, that's like a whole other kind of world. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Sharon Lieberman-Mintz, who's uh, one of the brains behind this, likes to say that the etrog is something that we take for granted. Yeah. You know, we worry about the cost and will we get it in time and uh, will its pitom remain intact and all of that. But we really don't think about the larger implications and the number of steps and the the, the number of people involved. And so if this book does anything, uh, it kind of alerts the reader uh, to the fact that... uh, something really precious about the etrog and its role in Jewish history and in our lives and not to take it for granted that much the same way that we're intentional mm-hmm. and mindful about so many aspects of our history, the etrog should fall into place in that way too. No, and I so appreciate what this book does, what this project does, because it basically does that, does exactly that, right? It brings the richness of this tradition into full view for us. And I think that Everyone will be grateful. I think I will be thinking, I know I will be thinking differently about the Etro oh, how nice. this year. Yes. Uh-huh. So Jenna weissman Jocelyn, Warren Klein, the book is Be Fruitful, the Etro in Jewish Art, Culture, and History, edited by Warren Klein, Sharon Lieberman-Mintz, and Joshua Toplitsky. Thank you for being our guests and happy Sukkot. Thanks for and having here's me. And here's to the Etro. <laughs> Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. 
Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox, we have been withholding the mail for a while just because other stuff like the the high holidays and repentance and the gates of awe, the book of life have intervened. And now it is time to go into the mailbox. So many of you have written in, so many great letters didn't make it in. Please keep writing. We're always happy to hear from you. The book may be closed, but the mailbag is open. It's so true. The mailbag is always open. And so let me open it. To the first letter, Liel, we have an anonymously sent first letter. I love this letter better than anything I think we've ever received. Like, this is it. I'm, I'm getting the print. I'm getting a t-shirt of this. <clears throat> Dear Unorthodox, I like your podcast, but not so much your self-promotion and self-absorption. Can't you minimize that? If not, eliminate it? <laughs> Does this person know what podcasts are for? So, have you met us? Uh, so, we've been talking to our therapists, uh, <laughs> and apparently, no, we're years and years away from doing away with a self-absorption. Apologies. I wonder which of us that was, that was. I like to think that was aimed at all three of us. I like your podcast, but not your self-promotion. Can you eliminate it? I will say that we're working on a lot of, like, I get that we're, like, we are promoting a lot right now, but, like, we have this great new show out that Marco, like, there is so much going on, and I think we want to just make our listeners aware of it. We're not, like, look how special we are. We're, like, look at all this stuff we're doing that we think you might enjoy. Like, it's actually yourself. Come- <laughs> no, no, it's, 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 it's actually it's about, how, exactly special about how special we are. And let me just say, uh, my book about the Talmud, 
coming out pretty soon. When's it coming out? Sometime next year, but that's a good opportunity for self-promotion and self-absorption. Start promoting now. Speaking of self-absorption and self-promotion, uh, we got a very, very long letter from listener Ari Mandel who concluded it. P.S. Domino's Pizza, goyish. I'm looking at you, Mark. <laughs> and I feel this is this is at once both loving and hostile. It's like he knows me, he so hates hostile. me, he loves me. He's like, Domino's Pizza, goyish. I'm looking at you, Mark. Well, you know what? You know what, Ari? That's right. I grew up in Goyland. I grew up, remember, the Little League team was organized by Catholic Parish. Domino's Pizza is what we had. By the way, that's not just in Springfield. Like on Long Island, we had CYO, which was like the fancy basketball league and you played at churches. But you had the Jewish option also. No, you didn't. You had PAL, like you had the police one. Like, I don't know. I want to right, broaden your, your imagery. Fair enough. But I also will say that that the pizza thing, this is where the, the Jew thing and the New York thing kind of intersect because once I went to my doctor, who is surprisingly not a Jew, and we were talking about something, and I said something, Domino's Pizza, and he stopped and looked at me very seriously and said, I don't ever want to hear about you ordering from Domino's Pizza. And I said, doctor, is this because like a health thing? He's like, no, because it's gross. You live in New York, order good pizza. I just say in my child, Domino's was the classy pizza. I had a friend whose parents didn't care about food. They got Little Caesars, which was like five oh, pizzas for yeah. $4. It was it was so far below Domino's, I couldn't even tell. Listen, Domino's is amazing. Back to the mailbox. This is one of several letters we got criticizing or gently tussling with Liel's conclusions about the New York Times article about Haredi yeshivas in Brooklyn. Dear Unorthodox, Liel jumps to the conclusion that a critique of something Jewish immediately means that someone is being anti-Semitic. I would not go so far as to characterize that article as anti-Semitic. Second, he mentions that there's a Supreme Court case that allowed the Amish to educate their children in the way they chose, but he mischaracterizes the case. That case, Wisconsin v. Yoder, only held that the Amish had a right to remove their children from the public school system after eighth grade, as it was contrary to their religious beliefs. It also explained parents had to provide an equivalent education in their privately operated system. In short, Leo mischaracterized the applicable law. Sincerely, Douglas J. Bornstein. Now, Dougie, thank you for the mail. I'm sort of with you on the first part of it. I think Liel overreached. That said, you cannot hang the Wisconsin v. Yoder Supreme Court misinterpretation around the neck of Liel, who's actually never heard of the Supreme Court. He only washed up on our shores a few years ago. Or, or Wisconsin. Maze Wisconsin. Maze Yoder. He knows nothing about the Amish. He knows nothing about, he doesn't understand the three branches of government. He's still psychologically back on a beach in Tel Aviv. I was the one who actually studied Wisconsin v. Yoder in college and grad school and should have known better. I mischaracterized Wisconsin v. Yoder. I am the Supreme Court correspondent. Don't ever blame Liel for that again. And you wonder why people don't like lawyers. Stephanie, would you like to read the next letter attacking Liel? Sure. This one comes in from Chaim, who writes, From his ivory perch and affiliation with the pluralistic synagogue on the Upper West Side, Liel knows nothing about what life in Haredi communities is actually like. The searing pain many feel having a life they did not choose forced down their throats, bereft of options to scaffold their way out, as Mark put it in this week's show. The picture of harmony Liel describes is a Disneyified rendering of a world with deeply rooted problems that cannot be remedied by letting these communities run without oversight, especially when it comes to children. Liel has no authority on any matters relating to this community until he puts his money where his mouth is and embraces life in B'nai Brock, Muncie, or New Square, foregoing his relationship with the secular world entirely. Chaim, here's the problem. I think he'd do it. Yeah, Liel, he's calling you out. Chaim, <laughs> here, here are several problems. Let's, let's, let's forgo for one second the absolutely idiotic assertion that if someone doesn't embrace something completely and disavows the other thing also completely, then they have no right to express an opinion. Okay, so you're right. Liel knows nothing 
about Haredi life. Liel, who's the great-great-grandson of Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, the leader of the Haredi community in Israel, knows nothing about Haredi life. Liel, 95% of whose family is Haredi. Liel, who did stints in Haredi yeshivas as a younger man. Liel, who prays in a Hasidic synagogue, knows nothing about Haredi life. I'm not even going to dignify this with an answer. But wait a second. Can I ask you something? I hear all that and like I've done, I haven't done as much as you've done to be fair, but I've done a lot of journalism in Haredi worlds. I have Haredi friends. I've dipped in. Isn't there something that you would only know by being raised in that world without a sense of other options in the hermeticism and closed world that the Times was writing about? Isn't there a feeling you would know that none of us can really know unless we're living it? I mean, is be fair to this guy. When he says, you're saying this from your ivory perch of your pluralistic synagogue, that's not entirely wrong. Of course, it's entirely wrong because I haven't done any journalism in Haredi communities. I've, I've lived adjacently to them and actually been emotionally and, and, and familiarly part of them. And the thing that actually... And this is no tribute to Chaim, who honestly deserves no tribute for writing screeds, knowing absolutely nothing about me. But this is to answer your question in the spirit of love and respect. This is the thing that bothered me the most about this article, because I do know how the Times approached the reporting. They made no real serious effort to talk to actual scholars of these communities, and they made no serious efforts to talk to actual people in these communities who weren't people with agendas who wanted to push this one very, very narrow and largely inaccurate point of view. There is not a single mother, right, in this entire 17 billion word piece that says, sure, here's why I choose to send, you know, Shlomo to to this yeshiva. There's not any attempt to talk to, to community leaders. And I also have talked to several community leaders who were approached for this piece and who felt like they were treated very unfairly. Okay. So no, I reject okay. this whole thing categorically. And I frankly hate nothing more than this idiotic, you know nothing. And if you like it so much, why don't you go live there? Hey, if you hate America so much, why don't you leave it? Okay. Let's move on to the greatness of Stephanie Butnick. And I'm going to read this tribute to Stephanie Butnick. This letter comes in about our discussion about the LGBTQ plus group at Yeshiva University. Dear Unorthodox, I wanted to thank Stephanie for stating plainly that, quote, it must be really hard to be a queer student at Yeshiva and feel like you're accepted in some ways, but not others, unquote. Stephanie really seems to get that however we feel about the issues and outcome, the students are struggling and they are certainly blaming themselves. Maybe it really wasn't an issue. Maybe I made it an issue. Maybe I should have gone to Harvard. Maybe life will be easier in law school. How can I be unhappy and lonely when gay marriage is legal and my parents didn't shun me when I came out? It must just be me. Sincerely, Julie. I love this note, and I always love any note that gives kudos to the great Stephanie Butnick. <laughs> I completely agree with it. The only thing that I want to add is, again, from, from my personal experience, Chaim, being affiliated with, with YU, I actually do feel that uh, on, on a personal level, the administrators and teachers in the school do go to great lengths to address exactly this point of how incredibly difficult it is to be queer in a, in a Torah-abiding institution. Absolutely. Julie, I love you. I love this letter. I will say, taking that statement broadly, maybe life will be easier in law school. No, I feel like you should avoid law school, not because of this, just in general. Like, you don't need to go to law school. No one needs to go to law school. Now onto the really weighty issues. Now that we've dealt with yeshiva education and civil rights in higher ed, Family holdback. We talked about it a lot on the last episode. What is this thing that our colleague Tanya Singer heard about? Is it Gentile? Is it Jewish? Family holdback. It's this thing where apparently some people say if there's not enough food, they whisper to their kids, FHB, family holdback, which means the family doesn't get to eat. 
we had a long discussion about whether Jews say this, Gentiles say this, does anyone say this? Beth Foster writes, Gentile here, never heard of FHB. I'm from a half Italian home and grew up in the Midwest. There was no such thing as running out of food at a party or even dinner. If there was not enough food to send people home with plates, then we failed. I like this because it points out that we were totally like giving short, we were assuming that in Gentile culture, there's never enough food. And here's this Gentile saying like, wait a second, we don't starve people. Like yeah, the Italians are like, wait, what? What? Like, have you ever been to like Wednesday night dinner? Have you been to a church supper? Like, what are you talking about? There's lots of communities that feed people properly. Leah, you want to read the next letter? Absolutely. As a first-generation American, my parents were Holocaust refugees from Belgium. Sorry, Leo. You don't have to apologize, Marvin, for having parents who survived the Holocaust and happened to be from Belgium. I had never heard of the concept. However, my wife, who has American-born grandparents, schooled me in the concept after we were married and told me that it was a common phrase in her family, which, while very American, was also modern Orthodox. Maybe the fact that they were from Scranton, Pennsylvania, rather than New York area, had something to do with it. Marvin Fortgang playing Jewish geography. Well, what do you think, guys? Is, is the Pennsylvania part of it maybe uh, a dead giveaway? This is the first person who's saying, actually, this is a modern Orthodox. Like, this is a Jewish thing. This is a religious thing. And also, Scranton, of course, real hometown of Joe Biden. So I think there's kind of, you know- We should some, ask him. We should ask him when he comes on the show in three weeks. <laughs> Here's our next note. I was listening to your podcast, as I always do, while doing my Shabbat prep cleaning when I was shocked and appalled to hear about the concept of family hold back. As a gear or convert, I feel I must defend the honor of at least those Goyan living below the Mason-Dixon line. I love how this is like geofencing and triangulating this, this, totally. this debate. Completely. <laughs> because the very idea of not making enough food for not only every guest, but anyone they might choose to bring along and then double that amount is so alien to my upbringing in a very Southern, very Protestant, and very working class family. I also grew up as an army brat, invited to both ordinary family dinners and great occasions of families that were Black, Latino, Asian and Pacific Islander. And thus, I feel confident calling family holdback pure Yankee and not just Goy, but Wasp Michigas. <laughs> By the way, Wasp Michigas is an amazing name for a band. Just That's amazing. <laughs> it is an amazing name for a band. Wasp Michigas. I also slightly bristle at the implication that this is a mark of privilege. Coleslaw we may have had in abundance, but money, not so much, not ever. Fundamentally, the whole principle of family holdback makes no sense to me. If you're at my table, your family and family doesn't hold back. Yours, a slightly outraged, goy-ish balabusta, Verena. Amazing. If you're here, your family. I, I like that as a slogan. Someone someone should pick that up. Yeah. Dear Unorthodox, were you all sleeping in services when they read Bereshit, Vayera? This Parsha documents that Avram and Sarah were the first practitioners of family holdback. And he, Avraham, took cream and milk and the calf that he had prepared and he placed them before them, the three angels of God, and Avraham was standing over them under the tree and they ate. This instance of FHB was favorably viewed by God and he promised Sarah a child within the year. So FHB has its rewards and it came from the Jews. Gamar Chatima Tova, Marty Rosenstein. Reb Marty, taking it to the text, taking it to the Chumash. Move over, Rashi. Give me some more Marty. <laughs> This is incredible. How about this one? I was at my in-laws for dinner when I heard my mother-in-law tell everyone else family hold back. She's a lovely lady, and I'm sure she didn't mean to say I was not family, but the expression does have an edge to it. Uh, yikes. Yikes. <laughs> yikes. <laughs> that is harsh. Sorry, Alyssa. On, only family should hold back. You go ahead and eat as much as you want. Oh, my God. That is brilliant. That's a great letter. Hey, this is Judy from Rybrook, New York. I had never heard of family hold back, of 
family holdback, a family holdback, until my wonderful Irish Catholic friend Maureen taught it to me while we were hosting a school event together. Since then, I've taught it to my family in case of emergency, because you never know when people are going to go heavy on the brisket or the turkey at Seder. I'm not sure we've used it very often because I strive to overcook for family simchas. What a beautiful occasion of cross-cultural interfaith dialogue right here. Judy from Rybrook, you should teach things to the writer of the next letter, Shelby Dosser from St. Clair Shores, Michigan. She writes, I've been listening to this podcast for several years and I like to think of myself as a very unofficial MOT, member of the tribe, but I've never been more aware of my goyishness until this episode. I'm not even 20 minutes in and as usual, I'm listening and laughing with my favorite Jewish podcast, but I'm about as goyish as it gets and I had never heard the term FHB or family holdback before. That being said, my immediate family do all eat like birds and our Thanksgiving <laughs> meals and other family gatherings are pretty sparse in terms of the amount of food served. And even so, there are usually leftovers. But side note, alcohol, on the other hand, is readily available and flows freely at family gatherings. Sincerely, Shelby Dosser, St. Clair Shores, Michigan. This next one goes back to Tanya Singer, the originator of this phrase for us. This is from Andrea Scholler, who writes, I heard this term at my first fundraising job in the 80s. I've continued to hear it used and have used it myself in reference to food and alcohol being served at events thrown by nonprofit organizations. I never heard it used by any of the Catholic and Protestant families I grew up with, and the concept would never have registered with my Jewish family. Love the podcast. Hoping you'll do a show in the Berkshires someday. From Andrea Scholler in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. So, she learned it at her first fundraising job. Tanya Singer heard it when she was doing event planning. I think what we've discovered is that family holdback, which we've discovered goes back to the 19th century and has popped up in various circles. Apparently it's big in the modern Orthodox community of Scranton, Pennsylvania. But who's really keeping it alive? The event planning and fundraising, the development office, basically. FHB is big in development circles. That's my new theory. But we have one final voicemail to bring us home and to, to further complicate this with another group of people for whom FHB actually is quite relevant. This is a voicemail from our pal, Benjamin Cohen, not Ben Cohen, Benjamin Cohen, a different person. This is our pal, Benjamin. Hey, Mark, Stephanie, and Liel. It's Benjamin Cohen, longtime listener, friend of the pod, and former Jew of the Week. Hope you're doing well. I'm calling in regards to the recent debate you guys had over FHB, family holdback. I uh, personally, I come from a large family and my dad's a rabbi and we would often uh, invite over at the last minute stragglers from synagogue who didn't have a place to eat. So my siblings and I were very familiar with the concept of a family holdback. I, I even go a step further. There was another rabbi in town whose home I used to go to for Shabbat meals sometimes. And when they had extra unplanned guests, they also did family holdback. And since I was a friend of the family, they asked me to be part of the family holdback as well. So I guess you call it the uh, an extended family holdback. Anyway, uh, enjoying the episodes. Keep up the great work. Take care. Binyamin Cohen. Thanks for calling in. If you want to call in, please call us. 914-570-4869. We love playing your voicemails. 914-570-4869. Or write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Roger Studley is the founder of Berkeley Moshav, a co-housing community and development in California. We spoke to him about the co-housing movement and Jewish communal living. Roger Studley, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you, guys. Good to be here. 
So where are you coming to us from? Are you in Berkeley Moshav right now? Berkeley Moshav does not yet exist. We're building it. But I'm in Berkeley and we're building Berkeley Moshav. We're about three years out from moving in. And so what is it? Right. So Berkeley Moshav is a Jewish co-housing community. The idea of Jewish co-housing is to kind of recreate a Jewish village or a Jewish neighborhood, right? The co-housing part is the neighborhood part. It's a it's a way of living. It came out of Denmark about 50 years ago. It's a way to recreate neighborhoods, intentional neighborhoods, high-functioning neighborhoods where people actually interact with the people they live next to, which we don't really do so much anymore. So that's the co-housing part. And then the Jewish part is to say, well, let's make it this a Jewish village or a Jewish neighborhood. When I uh, was first trying to explain what I'm doing to my mom, I kind of said what I just said. And there was this pregnant pause. And uh, after after pausing for a little bit, she responded. She's like, you're building a shtetl? <laughs> and and my, my, you know, my response was was no. Well, okay, sort of, but no. But in a way, yes, right? We're creating the good aspects of the shuttle, right? The, the shuttle sucked, right? You know, we were persecuted. We were forced to live there. Um, we were killed sometimes. But it also brought us closer together, right? It also made us a village. It made us a people. It made us connected to the people that we live next to. And, you know, arguably, we came, you know, you know, what didn't kill us made us stronger. Those of us who survived the shuttle came out of stronger community. But community is absent from most of our daily lives. And if we're Jewish, Jewish community is absent from most of our daily lives. And the idea is to say, why don't we do something about that? Why don't we fix that? Why don't we create a place where we can live in a village, live in a neighborhood, live connected to our neighbors? Okay, but but co-housing, as it came out of Denmark and as it's, you know, and there are probably a couple hundred co-housing communities in the United States, it has a specific set of things that it does, right? It has the common right. dining area, the common kitchen. Like, explain to people what it is that makes it different from sort of a barracks on the one hand or just a neighborhood where people are nice to each other but own their own houses and have their own quarter acre plots on the other hand. Right. Well, it is a neighborhood where people are nice to each other and own their own houses, not necessarily quarter acre plots, but they're nice to each other. They own their own houses. But on top of that, they're not just nice to each other. They're involved in each other's lives. And so the architecture of co-housing, the design of co-housing supports people being involved in each other's lives. It's this layer of intentional community on top of this neighborhood where people are nice to each other. So what happens in a co-housing community? They'll have infrastructure that supports community. So a great big piece of that infrastructure is a, a communal dining hall, a communal place where, where people eat meals together, a great room. You don't eat all of your meals in the great room. It's not a barracks in that sense. It's not a kibbutz in that sense where, you know, you didn't kind of have your own private home. Everybody ate every single meal. You'd go to the Hadar Ochel and you'd eat your food there. This is a little bit, it's kind of in that direction, but not all the way in that direction, right? There's a place where the community eats together communally, However often the community wants to do it, it could be twice a week, it could be five times a week. Uh, the community decides, the members of the community take turns cooking the meals. If it's your turn, you know, once a month, you're on a shift and you you plan and, and create a meal and everybody else just shows up. And the rest of the time, whether, you know, three times a week, you don't do any of that. You just show up and you have a meal with your with your neighbors. You know, I've never had a meal with my neighbors. Maybe once or twice we had a, you know, a block party, but I don't have meals with my neighbors because I don't live in co-housing yet. We don't have a craft room that we all can gather in together and and do beating or whatever it is that people might do. Or we don't have a just a lounge area where we can get together and just, you know, shoot the shit. Sometimes I think I'm going to all the effort to create a Jewish co-housing community because at the end of the day, I just want to come home and I want to have like 30 people that I know who live next door and somebody pops open a beer and we can schmooze for half an hour. Like sometimes that's what I think I'm doing this all for, just so that like I can have that experience of living connected to the people around me, which we don't have. 
a family moves in, what do they have? And then they have access to all this public space. Like, how does it actually work? Most co-housing is structured like a condominium. So it's it's no different in that respect. Right? You own, you move in, you own your home, you have your you have a full home, you have a full kitchen. You can you never have to leave your home if you don't want to participate in the communal meals. You don't have to. So there's this balance of of privacy and community. But you <laughs> move a in. serious dick move though, like to buy into co housing well, and then never <laughs> want anything to do with your co housing neighbors. Like that would suck. To some degree, yes, and to some degree, no. Right? People. It, the, what what I hear from co housing, and I've spent a lot of time talking to folks about it, is that. That happens a lot in the sense that people at different points in their lives, in the year, in their week or whatever, sometimes people really want to be connected and communal. And sometimes people want to be a hermit. And what this gives you is the opportunity to flow between being really, really connected and with people all the time and kind of like, I'm tired of you guys. I'm going to stay in my home for six months. And that happens, you know, but it, but, but if you, if you don't live in co-housing, you don't have the opportunity for the communal part. So Stephanie, to kind of go back to your question of like, what happens when you move in, right? I mean, you know, we're building this thing. So we're all going to move in together, but let's say a co-housing community exists and somebody moves out and somebody else moves in and hopefully, you know, they've, they've, conducted the search for someone to move in in a way that, you know, the person who moves in, you're not going to want to move into a co-housing community where your 30 neighbors expect you to participate in communal meals and hang out with them and have beers with them and do projects with them and go go hiking with them, right? If you're not part of the program, there's plenty of condos, probably cheaper condos that you can move into um, that don't come with that those expectations. But So you move in, you kind of get, get that it's a co-housing community. What happens? You, people stop, people are your neighbors. They come by, they talk to you, they get to know you, like 30 households, like your whole block comes, you know, would come over and just want to know who you are. You'll come to communal meals. You'll sit at a table with eight of your neighbors. The next night you'll come to, two nights later, you'll come to a communal meal. You'll sit there with, you know, another group of neighbors. Your kids, you'll need to run an errand and, you know, your kid doesn't want to go along. And so you'll leave your kid in the courtyard, or, you know, and you ask your neighbor if they can keep an eye on them. Or you put them in the, the younger kid, you'll put them in the playroom and the people who are making dinner will keep an eye on them. Simple, small moments of connecting to the people that you live next to and, having whatever the opposite of social isolation is. I keep saying connectedness. I keep saying community. Belonging is another another word that pops up a lot. But it's those things. It's connectedness, community, belonging that that you would get care. People are people are sick. People are just having a bad day. You know, you know, it's not just your family that's responsible for picking you up. As you know, as you've no doubt had to deal with this, some of the red tape you're getting through, it's it's illegal in America to exclude people on the basis of religion from from housing. And I, I once wrote about a Christian housing community that one of the issues they had was that they couldn't actually require that people be Christian or any particular kind of Christian. So you have to describe it. I'm sure you have language like that. It's going to have a Jewish vibe, but yep. it's not, it's not housing for Jews. Okay. So, so two, two part question. Number one, like how have you negotiated that? How are you signaling to people? This is Jewy without being segregated for Jews only right. or right. restricted, shall we say? And number two, what's going to be Jewy about it? You know, there's kind of two sides to it. On the one hand, we're not being exclusive to Jews, right? We want, we, we're, you know, yes, it is going to have a Jewish vibe. It's going to have more than a Jewish vibe. It's going to have a kosher kitchen, right? So, you know, there are things in place that 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 signal that, you know, this is where we intend to make a Jewish community. G- game over. Once you tell people, yeah. once, once you say no bacon, actually, yeah. you've done the work. My question right. is answered. That, the that Christians is part are of coming. It. It's absolutely part of it. Right. Well, I was saying before about you're not going to move into co-housing if you're kind of not with the communal program. All the more so, you're not going to move into Jewish co-housing if you're not with the Jewish program. So that that's one part of it. At the same time, we really do want to be as inclusive and expansive as we can, which means we're trying to satisfy people who are traditionally observant, and we're trying to satisfy people who, you know, don't know what kashrut means. And we're trying to also satisfy people who move in who may be a partner of someone, non-Jewish partner of somebody, or somebody who, you know, has always been kind of like 
connected and part of a Jewish community, but is in no formal way Jewish. Like our intention is to be open and accepting and more than accepting, comfortable for that spectrum. That's a challenge, but that's that's what we're trying to do. On the other hand, housing law, fair housing law is actually a little bit more nuanced than that. It does allow religious organizations to have a preference for their own members. Um, I don't know if it lets you be exclusive, but it does It does allow you to have a preference for your own members. So from both sides of that, like fair housing law does give us an opening and we're not trying to be exclusively Jewish. And, and in fact, we're not. So that's how we solve that problem. So what are we doing that is Jewish? You know, in a way, we haven't really decided that yet, for, first of all, right? We're still assembling the people who are going to live there. We, we're going to have about 36 to 39 homes. Um, we have about a quarter of that right now, members who are, who are invested in the community, both, you know, both emotionally and financially invested in creating the community. And, and, and so right now, we're looking for new pe- more people to join the community. And as people join the community, they will decide together what it is that we're going to do Jewishly. Now, we have some contours of that sort of laid out and we talk about, you know, we want to meet everybody's needs, the, you know, secular folks and the traditional folks. And we want, you know, we want to have a communal experience of Shabbat. For example, what does that mean? That's kind of up to the community and the people who ultimately show up and move in. But yeah, you know, I imagine we will do things as diverse as, you know, we'll have Minyanim there when, you know, we'll say Kaddish when somebody dies. Maybe we'll have services once in a while, but we're going to have, we're going to be kind of a crossroads from the local Jewish community, people from all streams of Judaism. Um, But maybe we'll have some, you know, some services of some sort. We'll certainly have like a Pesach Seder. We'll certainly have Sukkot. You know, we'll certainly, you know, make brisket on occasion, like if that counts as something Jewish. We'll do learning together, Jewish learning together, and we'll do non-Jewish learning together. And maybe we'll even do things like, I think of like Sukkot is a really good example, a good good opportunity for us to be, say, ambassadors of Jewish community to the local neighbors. So we'll say, hey, neighbors, come on in. We'll have the sukkah in our courtyard. You know, we'll have a meal. We'll explain to you what it is that we do, right? So we won't be so mysterious to the people who don't know, you know, what what Jews do. We want to be a a part of this local civic and neighborhood community as well, right? We'll have a facility, you know, next to a bunch of single-family houses. So maybe once or twice a year, we'll have a movie night. And we'll say, you know, we'll pick a movie and we'll have everybody come in and we'll just watch a movie and give them kosher popcorn. And they won't know the difference, but... Right. Like, <laughs> I think popcorn is basically kosher, but yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. <laughs> as long as you right. leave the pork rub off the top. Yeah, of it. Exactly. So, you know, we'll do how, you know, how do other people do Jewish? We'll do, we'll do that essentially. You know, it's so interesting because you mentioned the shtetl. So there obviously is this precedent for like, you know, Jew on Jew living. And, you know, for, for Orthodox Jews, this is, this <laughs> I is love that expression, Stephanie. Jew on Jew, Jew, living. It's Jew a, living. It's a context for it. But, you know, yeah. for, for, Orthodox Jews, I mean, living in in that community is still pretty much, you know, the name of the game, right? If you have to be walking distance to your synagogue, to your shul, you're by default putting yourself in a specific area. But at the same time, something does feel quietly revolutionary about what you're doing, because so much of what we've been talking about the past two years specifically, but even more so, you know, even beyond that, is this idea of people want Jewish community, but they don't know where to find it. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, my very, very broad question for you is like this co-housing idea comes out of Denmark, right? It's not a Jewish thing, but it does seem to me like there are some distinctly Jewish applications. Do you see yourself as being very much part of a Jewish tradition? I do, um, both, both, I guess, historically and contemporarily, if that's a word. Jewish life is communal life. You're not Jewish. You go off in your home and you kind of sit there and have some faith 
that sustains you, but it's you're disconnected to other people, right? That's not how we we're Jewish. We're Jewish in community, right? We show up to synagogues, we show up to festivals. You know, we ha- we have like all traditions have. We have our 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 gatherings for wed- weddings. We have our bar mitzvahs. We have all that sort of thing. You know, there's the joke about you know every Jewish holiday, right? It's you know they tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. And so, you know, there's this communal aspect of it. In, in Israel, right, you have, the, you have the kibbutz, which is, you know, we're not going that far, right? We're not, we're not, we have private property. You know, we're, we're raising our kids individually, right? We're not, we're not going as far as the traditional kibbutzim did. But they also, in, in Israel, have a moshav. And the moshav is kind of a, a, a hybrid model where, you know, there was something at the center, typically like a farm or a factory, factory or some productive endeavor at the center, and those people who worked there and owned that factory made a community together, but life was private. And so that's why I've kind of chosen this, the, the word Moshav, both for the community we're building in Berkeley, Berkeley Moshav, because I find co-housing in a Moshav to be quite analogous. And also with a related hat I wear for something called Urban Moshav, which is me as a nonprofit development partner trying to help create these communities in other places. So the Moshav idea, you know, really resonates, very, is very, I think it's very close to co-housing, very analogous to co-housing. And then the other thing when I, when I said contemporary, the, there, you know, there's other stuff going on that's largely under the radar in the Jewish world. In Israel now, there are there. First of all, there are urban kibbutzim um, that have popped up in popped up in urban areas, and you know they they see themselves as like you know the the mission of the original kibbutzim has been largely accomplished, right? They you know they 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 populated the land, they defended the borders, they drained the swamps, right, and they they helped create the the, the modern land of Israel, and a lot of that work is done. But a lot of the folks who are in these urban kibbutzim say the work isn't done. There's just different areas that need that need work, and so they they form kibbutzim in these urban areas. But it's not just urban kibbutzim. On you know, the urban kibbutzim tend to be in the you know the left of this of this political and social spectrum, like the labor Zionist side of the spectrum. But on the right side of the spectrum, on the religious side of the spectrum, they have what they call garin torani, similar idea, village you know small villages that intentional Jewish communities that have a mission. In Israel, a lot of these communities tend to have a mission, whereas our mission is really let's make community and have a place for Jewish life. But they tend to have a, a little bit of an extra mission on top of that. I could say more about that, but I'm, I'm kind of on a monologue, and so I'll pause. No, 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 but this is really, really interesting. And I think a lot of our listeners are going to say, like, are going to say, wow, I've been waiting all my life to hear this stuff. There are people who have those intuitions, right? That they want to live in community, that they that they want to be less isolated, and but maybe they don't want to go live in Williamsburg or Borough Park. They don't want to do it by becoming, by moving into an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood where people really are in each other's lives in a beautiful way, but a way that's not for everybody. But here's my question for you, Roger Studley, if I may get personal for a moment. Like, what kind of dude are you? <laughs> And do we want to live with you? Like, right, do I, you know, at all, let me take it back to myself for a moment. Like, because my dad's intrigued by co-housing. I have some good friends. My friend Gadiel is, I think, lived in some co-housing in the South. I think of myself, like, I'm a super extrovert. I would, I love the idea of dropping in on other people all the time, but I really hate meetings and I don't want to do anything by consensus. So I've decided like, fuck co-housing, man, because there's just meetings after meetings after meetings. But if I could opt out of the meetings and, and just get the good stuff, just like live with people and cook with them and have a beer with them, that would be awesome. But I'm, but I'm curious, like, I'm assuming you're not an introvert. I mean, what kind of dude are you that this appeals to you? You know, I, I grew up as an only child, so that's part of it, right? And, you know, kind <laughs> you of- You need friends. <laughs> you need siblings. <laughs> yeah, I need siblings. I, you know, I want people to come home and have a beer with. But in a way, it doesn't matter what kind of a dude am I, because I'm like one among, uh, you know, I'd be one household, part of one household among 
30 plus households. No, I understand you're not looking right? for carbon copies of yourself, but I still want to know, like, what about this? If you had to put yourself on the couch, what about all this appeals to you? It's the community. It's the connection. It really, really, you know, I never went to Jewish summer camp, but when I've had experiences like that, so I've gone to, you know, I spent three weeks in Israel one summer at the conservative yeshiva learning Hebrew and some text. And like, yeah. that was a blast, right? You know, and you're there with a, a group of other people and you have this communal experience where you're doing something together and it was fabulous. Or, you know, a couple of times I, I tried my hand at Jewish song leader camp. You know, I got to spend a week in camp there. So like those, you come away from those experiences, they're amazing. You, you just kind of feel the, the craving for more of that. So Roger Studley, if people who are listening to this want to learn more, want to figure out how they could be involved. They want in. How do they find out more? It's just berkeleymoshav.org. So B-E-R-K-E-L-E-Y-M-O-S-H-A-V.org. That'll take you to the website. Will you have us there for a live show? Absolutely. Are you kidding? You guys, you we'll guys, be there for, for opening weekend. Move-in day? You're totally there. You're invi- I haven't asked the community. We'll be the entertainment. <laughs> but, but in a very uncommunal move, I'll say, screw them, you're invited. There we go. Oh, we have guest rooms. So, you know, part of the communal infrastructure is guest rooms. So there you go. Ooh, we got, love guest rooms. You've got we the guest it. rooms reserved for opening weekend. <laughs> that is amazing. Roger Studley, Berkeley Moshav, thank you so much. We're, we're so excited to see where this project goes. Good luck. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Back in 2018, our former editor, Sophia Steinert Evoy, traveled to the only commercial etrog farm in the United States, which in a very unorthodox spin is run by non-Jews. This segment was so good that we wanted to air it again this year. So we have a new editor working with us. Her name is Sophia Steiner Evoy, and she is amazing, but she's not just good at cutting audio behind the scenes. No, she's not. No. In fact, she'd only been with us, you know, a couple months when we thought we want to send somebody across the country on two flights, followed by a bus ride, followed by a mule ride, followed by a hitchhike to end up a couple hours south of Fresno, California, to interview the country's only commercial etrog producer. And we asked Sophia to go. And I would say she... uh, It was sort of like her unorthodox hazing, and she made it through. (laughs) She made it through the other side. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. (laughs) Sophia Steinert-Evoy, south of Fresno, California. So my producer went to the Upper West Side this morning. Upper West Side. Yeah, he tricked me. He told me Williamsburg. They went to the Upper West Side. <laughs> he, he, didn't, he didn't go down to Lakewood then? No. no too they bad. He said it was too far. And I said, too far? You sent me to California. <laughs> yeah. You can't go down to New Jersey. <laughs> I'm sitting on the side of Highway 198 in Exeter, California. And I'm talking to the only commercial etrog farmer in the United States. This past Sunday morning, September 23rd. And as you can imagine, it's been a hectic week. Uh, I'm John Kirkpatrick. I am the farmer uh, that's been doing this now for 38 years. Kirkpatrick? Yeah, not Jewish. Uh, actually, I've been farming uh, since I was 11 years old. So I've been farming for 79 years. And 39 of that, we've been growing Esrogium. 38. 38, about half of half of my farming career at Lynn Cove Ranch, yes. Yeah. 
By the way, I'm just teasing Josh and Liel about going to the Upper West Side. That had been the plan for weeks. But John is partial to the yeshiva sale in Lakewood, New Jersey, because that's where his business partner, Yaakov Rothberg, does his wholesale market the weekend before Sukkot. John shows me a picture on his phone that Yaakov sent him at 1 a.m. that morning. The market is still full of men inspecting the etrogs for purchase. Well, at the end of the season, any of the fruit that remains unsold uh, is taken over to the yeshiva, and um, they hold a normally a two-day sale. It was a day and a half this year, from Friday morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, and from sundown yesterday until 3 o'clock this morning, and the crowd you saw was purchasing a bargain, high-quality esrogium. All ours, $60 a piece. These are all the unsold etrogs, but they are by no means the leftovers. Simply the pieces that haven't been ordered ahead of the holidays. These are all quality pieces. We don't, we don't sell no junk. <laughs> I would not expect you to. <laughs> no. Quality is the name of this game, as you can tell, as you can see. All of the etrogs that Lynn Cove Ranch sells for Sukkot are grown under rabbinic supervision. They're certified kosher and qualified for making the mitzvah. Kosher is right. Yeah. It's kosher. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't grade it. I can't do that. Right. I can't do that for an observant uh, Orthodox Jew. It has to be done by an Orthodox expert. Right. Now, I can take one and say, look at this, and he can say, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, my decision is not enough. As John said earlier, quality is the name of the game. Every detail of the process must be supervised and approved from the very beginning. This started back in 1979 when Yaakov Rothberg's brother-in-law, Rabbi Yisrael Weisberger, approached John with the idea of growing etrogs here in the U.S. Weisberger wanted to know if John knew of any farmers who might be right for the job. John volunteered himself then and there over the phone. Since then, Rabbi Rothberg has opened several retail shops in New York and New Jersey, all selling exclusively Linco fruit. Now, John is certainly the original brains behind the operation, but his son Greg Kirkpatrick took over the family farm in the early 2000s. In the late afternoon, Greg showed me around Linco Ranch. So this is the farm. Beautiful. Not really. Oh, the yard's kind of a mess. <laughs> he was exhausted, sunburnt, and a bit scratched up from the harvest. But he kindly answered all of my hard-hitting journalistic questions about citron trees. Do they have names? No. Is that like a rule, like on farms, like you don't name your plants? No, I don't know. We just never name trees. Uh, I mean, people name their animals, uh, especially <laughs> their breeding stock, I think, a lot of times. But uh, Do you love the trees? Yeah, I think, well, I appreciate them, I guess. It's hard to love a tree that's as thorny as a citron, because it's always, I mean, uh, you know, the, even now, I mean, you can see this, the scars from the season haven't all healed yet. There's still scratches on the arms from picking. So if this all started 30 years ago, would you say, like, do you feel like you grew up with these a little bit? 
kind of. Uh, you know, it's my dad's project. <laughs> and I was not around at the time he really got it started. I was when I was in college and spending time in the Peace Corps and things like that. And then I came home from my adventures in 1987-88. And then I started my own ag consulting business and agricultural consulting yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then doing my own thing I had my own career for uh, you know 15 years or so but everyone you know at harvest time I'd always get pulled in to help out that grew into in 2003 we sat down and had the family meeting <laughs> at which time mom and dad were saying you know what are we going to do with the farm is anybody interested and i raised my hand and said I, yes i'll be the designated family farmer <laughs> am i tempted to go on a tangent and get greg to tell me all about his experiences in the peace corps working in aquaculture in guatemala and honduras in the 1980s yes yes i am but we are here to talk about etrogs and we are going to start at the beginning the lineage of each etrogue must be confirmed in order to be considered a true etrogue, approved for a mitzvah. Well, the seed was brought in under rabbinical supervision from Israel. The original seeds that we planted 30 years, over 30 years ago um, by Rabbi Avram Teichman, who uh, uh, puts his hexure on the fruit and uh, that's printed on our box. And he, we've continued to work with him for all this time. And so, for example, we're uh, starting a new uh, variety of citron. We grow five varieties now. Um, and we're starting to grow Moroccan citron. So last year he brought uh, and followed the chain of title for bringing some Moroccan seed over from Israel. And we planted that out under his supervision. And next year we'll put it in the ground here on the farm. So, what does it mean that the, the lineage is confirmed? So, those trees have been in Israel for a long time, and they're, they're the real deal. Yeah, some are, uh, so, for example, the, uh, the Hazanish variety that we grow was uh, deemed by the Hazanish to be the true lineage uh, or tree of true lineage, and so that's one of the varieties that uh, is deemed to be, you know, from the source. And so some people will only buy that variety. Others, this is Tamani here uh, from Yemen, and because uh, these trees went with the diaspora to Yemen over a thousand years ago, 1500, almost 2000 years, the, the, the seeds or the trees had been grown in backyards in, uh, in Yemen for that period of time, and some people believe that this is the tree with the, the truest lineage. Mm. And so they will only buy a tamani fruit. So is the idea that there was some original grove in Judea and that all trees yeah. are related to that grove? That would be the Garden of Eden. I've heard of that. Mm-hmm. When I said I was going to start at the beginning, I wasn't exaggerating. Are you, so, are you observant? Um, not, I know you're not Jewish, but I'm are not, you religious? I am a Christian, uh, and I have, um, I guess, my own personal faith, deep faith, I would say. Um, 
but I have a great deal of trouble with any organized church. <laughs> so that's kind of uh, where it begins and ends for me, I, I guess, is that uh, I, I th my grandmother was a Quaker. And uh, I really feel that the Quaker relationship to God is, is really kind of the one that, you know, I feel most comfortable with. So the trees are planted from approved seeds direct from the source, descended from the Garden of Eden, under Orthodox rabbinical supervision, and also under the supervision of Greg, who is partial to the friends but struggles with organized religion. Um, I'm going to pull this one off because it's got, um, so this is obviously fruit that, well, we, our last shipment went out on Wednesday, so this is not going to uh, make it for the holiday. Uh, too small, it needs to be at least two fingers in diameter, so. Greg holds the etrog in his left hand and places his right forefinger in the gap between his left thumb and middle finger. Granted, his fingers are a good deal bigger than mine, but it's easy to get the idea that this one is too small. Um, right now, you can see well, this is the way we measure fruit is um, by fingers. You, yeah, because you're out, <laughs> when you're out trying to pick it. Yeah, of you, course. You put your hand around it and see, and that's see that's only a, a tight one finger. Okay. So this piece would be not kosher for uh, for the blessing of the four species. Right. That's a whole lot of effort to go through to make no profit. But that's also why the highest quality etrogs go for such a high price. John goes into more detail about the process. Grading is done in the field. At the time of picking, uh, our employees know how to recognize a fruit that has potential. So that's really a first cut. And they're in the field repeatedly during the harvest season, and they see a fruit that doesn't qualify for bad shape, has a blemish or whatever, they cut it off and drop it on the ground. When we harvest, they cut the fruit from the tree, and they look at it again, and if it makes uh, the second cut, it goes in that padded box in one of those slots. If it's got a blemish on it, it'll go in the bucket that's on the wagon. We get it to the packing house and we wash them by hand. And when they dry on the table, a, a Greg or another employee can go around and, and we'll see fruit to come off. So when it comes to the, the final shipments, we pre-grade them. Greg does that himself. He does a very nice job. They're graded by the staff uh, at the store, and the customer himself makes a choice. The customer then, <laughs> yeah, you may not have heard this, the customer purchases his esrog. He can take it to a person, generally a rabbi, that he considers to be an expert, and have the rabbi, the expert, the mishgia, evaluate it for him. If if the expert finds fault, it can be brought back. You could exchange it for another piece or get your money back. You have one hour. Actually, uh, the hour rule isn't always observed uh, because the mishgia may be very busy. They they get long lines of of people waiting uh, to have them evaluate their fruit for them. Of course, 
If you're driving through the San Joaquin Valley around the holidays, you can pick up a set of the four species direct from the farm, which I believe is called Farm de Suca. Yeah, I did too. Later on the farm, the sun is setting. Wow. Is this, what's your favorite time of day here? About this time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, little, maybe a little closer to sunset, especially when it's a little cooler. Um, I used to go up, we used to have, there's a tree up there. Uh, at the top of the hill, it fell over a few years ago. It was a dead snag, um, and um, can't see it anymore. But there was a story about when we first started this that uh, one of the growers from Israel was spying on us, and, <laughs> and uh, they looked like a band standing up on top of the hill up there. So I always just look at it and go, "Yeah, that that's the." <laughs> Sometimes I'll go up and do the blessing of the four species, and I used to go up there to do it. Yeah. Do you do you do the blessing? I make the blessing. Yeah, myself. Uh, and. Uh, In Hebrew. No. <laughs> uh, but I have an uh, English interpretation of it. Do you enjoy it? Do you enjoy being part of this holiday, the ritual? Yeah, I, I do. It's interesting. You know, uh, one of our uh, uh, marketing. One of Yakov's crew in New Jersey has been with him and his kind of right-hand man for years. He comes out of grades every year, and he, you know, he says, you, know, you realize what a big deal this is one, one year when he was out. And I said, yeah, we get it. <laughs> well, it's funny. I know the Jewish calendar certainly more than any of my Reformed Jewish friends. <laughs> you know, I, I know... Uh, pretty much when, uh, not maybe, I couldn't tell you exact dates, but I know when the holiday uh, and the high holidays begin um, for the next five years. Because we always have to be planning. So next year, it's going to be a full month later, and it'll be a whole different growing strategy. So what happens after Sukkot? I think there's some Yiddish uh, proverb that the, there's nothing... Uh, worth less than a, a citron after Sukkot. Kind of like a Christmas tree too. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, so then all the fruit, obviously you'll see there's still a lot of fruit on the trees. Uh, we make candied peel, uh, a little bit small quantities uh, that we sell ourselves and uh, other we sell to others who are interested in uh, culinary uses of it. Now we also sell quite a bit to uh, a couple of distillers that make uh, uh, flavored vodka or um, cello out of it, you know, like a citron cello instead of a lemon cello. So, Lachaim, from Exeter, California, I'm Sophia Steinert Evoy, wishing you a bountiful harvest. The amazing Sophia Steiner Evoy is now teaching history, but she still does work in audio. You can check out her work at sophiasteinerevoy.cargo.site. Mazel tovs. Stephanie Butnick, do you have a mazel tov? I have a mazel tov to all of us who are trucking our way through the high holidays, who just got through Yom Kippur and who are ready to move into Sukkot. So uh, happy 5783 to all of us, I think. That's my mazel tov. Liel, do you have a mazel tov? I have a non-ironic, an unironic <laughs> mazel tov to Stephen. Steve, Stevie Cohen, uh, you bought the Mets, man. I'm very happy with everything you've done for them, for us. But it's your team now, man. Mazel tov, Stevie Cohen. You own the Mets. Mazel tov. 
My Mazel Tov is to this great couple that had an oof-roof at shul the other day. Uh, Taryn, who grew up in the synagogue, and her now husband, because they got married Sunday, Yoni, who lamed the whole Parsha and then the Haftorah. And then they came around to the children's service and told the story of how they met. And we'll just suffice it to say, they met online during pandemic. They squeezed the estrog and it came out sweet. They made lemonade out of lemons. And here they are, a new couple. They got married in the rainstorm that hit us, you know, in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. Everything was conspiring against them. And yet they, I think, had a beautiful weekend. So mazel tov to them. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. The team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Star Feminator, Daron Ruskay, and Sam Hacker. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook. Donate to our fundraiser. It's not too late. How much were you going to spend at Starbucks today? Could you go give us that much? If every one of you gave us that much, we will have all the money we need for next year tabletm.ag slash mysterybox. That's tabletm.ag slash mysterybox. You can get unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Our episode artist by Esther Werdiger, theme music by Golem, mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Do you want to send us snail mail? That'd be a cool thing to do. Write to P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Andy Gordon at Bolton Street Synagogue in Baltimore. And we come to you from the slightly chillier, autumnal, pumpkin-scented tablet studios where we're putting up our sukkah. Shalom, friends. So now, Steve, this song is for you. Meet the Mets, meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kitties, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life. Because the Mets are really socking the ball, knocking those home runs over the wall. East side, west side, everybody's coming down to meet the M-E-T-S Mets of New York town.